the final theme of our Advent celebration. Of course, the, the Christ candle, uh, Christ is our final theme. We're not going to light that candle today. We will have that one lit next week, just because. Um, but the, the final theme of the, the four weeks of Advent is uh, love. And typically, the message, the focus of the message is God's love towards us. Um, John 3.16. Anybody know John 3.16? Yeah, probably the most quoted passage of Scripture ever. Um, says that, that God so loved the world. Well, that there's uh, a newer translation that the... Uh, uh, it is, it's an a evolution of the Holman Christian Standard. It's the Christian Standard Bible, put out by Lifeway, actually, uh, that actually changes that a little bit to clarify what it means when we read that God so loved the world. Because when I hear God so loved the world... I think of that so loved as, as being like a quantitative or, or even a qualitative statement. He loved the world so much, right? But that's not really what the Greek says. The Greek says he loved the world in this way. This is how he loved the world, by sending his only son. So that's, that's a little bit different in the way we look at it. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of scripture. It's not our scripture for today. Um, and I don't want you to think that I'm saying that God's love is insignificant. That's not going to be the focus of our message this morning. Um, in fact, God's love is probably the most significant motivating factor in His plan of salvation for His people. God's love is big. It's huge. But today... I want us to focus on what love causes or should cause in our lives. What it should motivate us to be and to do on this side of the New Testament documents. Because, let's be honest, right? If the only focus of love is how much God loves us, then what does that how does that change us? Yeah. Right? It, it, can, it can lead us to think that there's something about us that makes us all that in a bag of chips and, and that we're, we're bigger than we are. It's God's love. But because of human nature, it's, well, it's God's love towards me. So I'm special. Right? As, as my buddy Jay used to say, God loves all of us, but I'm his favorite. Right? That's the problem with only focusing on God's love towards us. And Jesus doesn't focus just on God's love towards his people, but he emphasizes what we need to do towards one another, what we need to do towards other people. Uh, the passage that I read this morning, if you were paying attention, which I know all of you were paying rapt attention, hanging on my every word, because I'm all that in a bag of chips, uh, you you would recognize Jesus' command to the disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. Right? And at the end of chapter 13 there, that passage that I read, why does he tell them to love one another? Ah, see, you weren't paying attention. 
Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. Our love for one another is what shows the world that we're different. That's going to come in important later on after we get to the passage for today. The way the world knows we are Jesus' disciples is by the way we love one another. And it's not confined just to within the church. This love for one another is also going to extend to how we love people outside the body of Christ. Uh, If you think about Jesus when the, the Pharisees were trying to trap him and they said, what's the greatest commandment? And he encapsulated all of the commandments by saying the greatest commandment is to love God with all being. That's my paraphrase. It's just quicker. And he said, the second is like it, equal to. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we've talked about this before. Which one of us, who doesn't love themselves? Right? Now you, you can actually, you can say, I don't really like myself. There have been times where I have not liked myself at all. Because I've done things that have been really reprehensible. But, I have never skipped a meal. Ever. I know, that's hard to believe. Right? Very, very hard to believe. I've never skipped a meal unless it was for fasting blood work or for a a, a religious fast. I have fasted on occasion as part of that whole prayer and fasting thing that we're we're, uh, told about in Scripture. Um. I have never intentionally slept outside under the stars without some kind of shelter for my body, be it a blanket or a tent or a camper, preferably, or even better, a house, okay? Because if you think of it, we all sleep outside with a shelter over us. It's a house. We want the best for ourselves. If my air conditioner breaks at home, what do I do? I call Anderson Mechanical and get my air conditioner fixed because I don't want to be uncomfortable. That's how we love ourselves. That's how we ought to love one another is with that same sense of wanting that for somebody else no matter what it costs us. So as we continue here looking at the upper room discourse, we're going to pick up in chapter 15 with verse 12. Right where we left off last week, Jesus was, we just finished looking at, uh, he was telling them to, that their joy would be complete if they abide in him and let his words abide in them. That's what would make their joy complete, right? Um, to, to permeate their being with his commands, which would align them with his love for the Father, because what were his commands? told him to command, right? So his commands were God's commands. And if they let God's commands live through them, then they're going to be living according to God's will. And that is what enables them to ask and God do it for them because they're asking for what God already wants. This feeds directly into where we're going to pick up in verse 12. And verse 12 through verse 17 is actually the, the end of that portion 
But we're actually going to go from, from verse 12 all the way to verse 25 because of this important contrast between how the world knows that we're his disciples and what the world looks like. So if you would, stand with me. This is John 15, 12 through 25. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray. Father, once again, we turn to your word and we are challenged by the commands that Jesus has given us. We're challenged because of our nature, because of that sin that is deeply rooted in each one of us. Father, help us to hear your word. Help us to be changed by it this morning. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So we start right off there in verse 12, and he repeats the command to love one another. And the measure that he gives so that we can see whether we're doing it right or not is love one another the way I have loved you. No tough shoes to fill, right? How has Jesus loved them? Perfectly. Everything about the way he has loved them. He has sought nothing but the best for them. Even Judas, who's not part of the group right now, Jesus sought nothing but the best for Judas, knowing it was going to cost him his life. And probably, for Peter's sake, he clarifies what he's talking about. This is my command, you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Peter, pay attention. There's no greater way to show the love that you have for your friends than to lay your life down for them. This is probably, and this is, this is one of those universal things, right? It's, it's just some most heart-wrenching 
stories, the most tear-jerking movies or books that we read are where somebody sacrifices themselves for somebody else. It's probably why we have such a visceral, visceral reaction. That's a tough word to say. It was easy to type yesterday. Um, we have such a, 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 a deep down response that just, it, it almost seems to come from nowhere when we read about or we hear about on the news police officers, firefighters, EMTs, or military members being attacked. Whether they're doing their job or whether they're just, just out someplace, the idea that somebody who has agreed to step into one of the most dangerous situations that we know, and EMTs do it, right? Think about the number of car accidents the EMTs respond to. You're alongside the highway. You're trying to pull somebody out of a wrecked car. And there are people 30 feet from you driving past at 45, 50, 60 miles an hour. Right. Firefighters. I know. Let's go into a burning building to pull people out. These are dangerous situations. Police officers. Even something as simple as a traffic stop can be a hazardous situation for a police officer. Right? And then military. Enough said. (laughs) We'll go fight the bad guys on their turf so they don't come over here and do it on ours. So this is probably why we react the way we do when we hear about the police officer getting shot during a traffic stop or the the firefighter who dies during a a house fire. Or, Or It's probably why we react the way we do. Deep down somewhere... We understand that this is an act of love. Uh, I, I did 20 years in the Air Force. Uh, I heard a comedian yesterday said, you know, we, I was this close to being in the military. That was a dig on the Air Force. I can do that, right? If I'd been in the Coast Guard, then it would be this far. Um, but I... I still, I I went to the desert. I was there during the start of the last war. I was there when we had incoming missiles. Why? Because I believed in what we were doing. And I love the people back home. Now, when I retired, I loved the people a little bit less then I loved the prospect of having a little bit more time and not having to go to those kind of situations, right? But that doesn't mean my love for my country has stopped. That's why I'm still in civil service, working on Keesler Air Force Base, training up the next generation of young people to go do that stuff. So I don't have to. Jesus says, no greater love. There's no better way to demonstrate it than to be willing to lay down your life. Now, If you think about that in the context of who said it, Jesus is right on the doorstep of laying down his life. That's how he shows love. Kind of changes the picture when he says, love one another as I have loved you. Because he's going to lay down his life. Love one another to that point. Love one another that way. Now he continues, and, and he, he says 
He makes a statement that, that the relationship has changed between him and the disciples. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Servants and friends are different. Now, now this is one of those context things. I don't have any servants. I have kids. That's slightly different. They feel free to be a little bit more mouthy than servants would. And, and you know, servants in, in biblical context were probably indentured servants or slaves. And that kind of lip would have gotten them sold. I can't do that with the children. Human trafficking is illegal. Right? So we don't really have this, this idea of servants like this in the United States. But, you know, I have worked in the military long enough that I do understand that no matter how friendly I may be with my supervisor, we're not friends. No matter how friendly I may be with my subordinates, we're not friends. Something I had to learn when I got promoted into the NCO ranks is you are no longer a junior enlisted member, now an NCO. You can be friendly, but you cannot be friends. The relationship has to stay professional. Because there are times where the supervisor has to say to the subordinate, go do this job. The subordinate doesn't have to know why. And the supervisor doesn't have to tell them why. It's one of those cases where the answer can be, because I told you so. And that has to be the case. And that's what Jesus says. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing. The servant doesn't have to understand why the master said, go do this. But friends, friends have an intimate knowledge of what their friends are doing. Right? There there are people that I consider to be my closest friends, Alan, Dave, Danny. There are things we know about each other and each other's families that go well beyond just a passing acquaintance. We're very close friends. Jesus has shared everything with these men. He says, you are my friends. I'm laying down my life for my friends. I'm not doing this just for strangers. I'm not doing this just because. I'm doing this because of the love that I have for you. And for us. Now, of course, because I am who I am, I cannot overlook verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Which one of us is responsible for our salvation? God is. If you don't believe that, read verse 16 again. Because I got to tell you, that makes it very clear. You did not choose me. I chose you. And then he ups the the stakes just a little bit. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. I chose you because you've got work to do. I chose you because God has a mission for you to be involved in. None of us was saved so we can go to heaven. Wrap your handles around that. Salvation is not fire insurance. Salvation is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. 
Salvation is so that we can do God's will. Yes, there are cases where a person is saved at the moment before their death. Absolutely. What do they do that is part of God's will before they pass away? Not a whole lot, except for being saved. But the purpose behind our salvation is not so we can go to heaven. It's not so we can escape punishment. It is so we can do God's will. And then he says that not only are they chosen and appointed so that they can go bear fruit, but that their fruit should live on, that it should abide. And that that is the foundation for the Father granting their requests. Again, not a blank check. Not a, not, not one of these where we, if we say the right words, if, as long as we say our prayers and we say in Jesus' name at the end of them, God has to do it. No. God is not the select vending machine that we have to put correct change into. Right? If we ask according to God's will, He will do it. If we live according to God's will, then we're going to ask according to God's will. If we go off on our own like that lost sheep, Right? Remember the, the, the parable of the 99? The shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them, dumb enough to go wandering off on their own. What does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and he goes to find the one. Why? Because that one will never go looking for the shepherd. Ever. Unfortunately, we tend to spend our time more like the one than like the 99 that are obediently following. Jesus says, these things I command you, why? So that you'll love one another. Have you ever stopped and thought about that command to this group of people? Now, don't don't look at it in the bigger context of the church. Think of it in the immediate context that Jesus is saying this. He's talking to the eleven because Judas is gone. He's talking to these 11 men who have spent almost every hour with one another for the last three years. He's talking to them at the end of his ministry. He has taught them for three years. He has demonstrated who he is time and time again. They have testified to his identity as the Christ, as Messiah, as the Son of the living God. They have become almost an entirely new family unit together. Why would Jesus command them to love one another so emphatically? Why would he tie that love for one another to their identity as his disciples? And why would he correlate their love for one another to the effectiveness of their ministry and their prayers? Why would he be doing all of this? Because it's necessary. This is one of those cases where I want to point out that we're never commanded in Scripture to do something that we would do naturally. So that means that human nature, 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 I have to have Daniel edit that out of the podcast, human nature is not naturally bent towards self-sacrificing love for other people. Why is it such a big deal when a police officer puts his life on the line? 
Because that's out of the ordinary. Remember, we're, we're told, Jesus says that, that it's, it's, it's rare that a person will lay down their life for their friends, let alone for a stranger. That's completely uncommon. It's not natural. Human nature is not bent that way. It's not natural for us to love that way. There's another place where that command to love somebody is, is spelled out in Scripture. Guys, I'm going to pick on us, okay? Those of us with the whole XY chromosome thing. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul tells the Ephesians, specifically the men in the Ephesian church, to love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's that same command. Self-sacrificing love after the model of Jesus. Now why? You're talking about a husband and wife. Why would we have to be commanded to do that? Well, because, guys, we are self-serving, selfish, obstinate, hard-headed, not given to sacrificial love. That's not our nature. We have to be commanded to do that because we're not going to do it automatically. The same thing happens here. Our nature is exactly the opposite. Even the disciples, if you, if you fast forward, if you know the book of John just a little bit, you fast forward to after the resurrection when Jesus starts showing up in the, at the end of John's gospel here, the disciples have gone back to what they do know, right? So there's a bunch of them that are out on a fishing boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they're, they're out there with their fishing net. You know, they got the big old cast net or drag net behind the boat. And they've been fishing all night. What have they caught? Nothing. So then all of a sudden, this smart aleck on the shore calls out and says, Hey, toss the net on the other side of the boat. Where has that happened before? All right, now Peter is starting to catch on because as soon as he hears that command, he knows who it is that said that. And so Peter, the loving disciple that he is, obviously helps the guys haul in the net and throw it on the other side of the boat, right? No, he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. Can you imagine Peter's brother who's there in the boat with him? Can you imagine James and John in the boat with him? These four guys... These four guys have been fishing together since they were kids. There is evidence that, that James and John and their father were the, the, the fishing company that paid Peter and his brother to fish for them. And all of a sudden, Peter jumps out of the boat. What, what are you doing? They get the boat to shore. They bring in the fish that through the net on the other side of the boat, like Jesus commanded them to. They sit down and they start having a meal, and 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 Jesus does that whole, you know, do you love me thing with, with Peter, and you guys have heard that story a billion times, I'm sure. And then they get up and start to walk. And John is following them at a distance. And here's how quick and how easy it is for us to move away from that self-sacrificing love. Because Peter looks at Jesus and says, what about him? And what does Jesus say? In, in modern vernacular, Jesus says, none ya. None ya business. Not your problem. 
Do what I've commanded you. Because our nature is to be instantly insular. Self-focused. If it weren't for Jesus and His influence, His command, and the presence of the Spirit, the disciples would turn upon themselves in a heartbeat. This is why I kept reading, even though the the main idea of love is really illustrated there up to verse 17, verse 18 gives us the contrast that we need in order to understand this. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Well, that makes me feel better. Of course, they hated Jesus. He was perfect. I've given the world reason to hate me because I'm not perfect. Sometimes I'm a jerk and, and their hatred is, is legitimate. Right? But, but Jesus says that if we were of the world, then the world would love us because we were of the world. Jesus isn't bragging. He's not being a false martyr. The, the, the beginning of that sentence shouldn't really be if, or even the, the other translation for that Greek word shouldn't be since. It should be the word when. When the world hates you, remember they hated me first. Because his teaching is antithetical to the philosophy of the world. It's directly opposed. It's, it's the opposite. The world tells us, that we have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap. Never understood that statement, by the way. Okay? Wearing boots with the little loops on the back of them, and if you try to pull yourself up by those, you're actually pulling yourself down. I just, I I don't understand. But the world tells us that we're responsible for our own success. The world tells us the future is in my control. Paradise is within my grasp. You are the master of your own destiny. God is a crutch. What does that sound like? Biblically. Sounds like Genesis chapter 3 to me. God knows that if you eat eat of this fruit, that you'll be like God. You'll be in control of your own destiny. You'll be the powerful one. Huh. This statement that the world's going to hate us because of the way we reflect Jesus should be a cautionary statement for us. It should cause our hackles to rise up. If we are of the world, the world will love us. If the world loves us, then we look like the world. Are we really showing the life of Christ, the way we ought to. Jesus says the world will hate us because we've been called out of the world for a purpose that is opposed to the way of the world. If they hated the one who called us, if they persecuted him, they're going to persecute us. If they don't persecute us, if they don't hate us, folks, we have to be worried. That should concern me. Now, I'm not talking about being a jerk or being abrasive or being weird in such a way that the world looks at us and says, you're just, you're weird. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm talking about the way they react to who we are. 
I'm talking about that story of the, the, the golfing situation where uh, R.C. Sproul told, told the story of the guy who went golfing with Billy Graham, the golf pro. I know I've told the story before where they get back and he meets up with the golf pro at the driving range after the match and the guy is just abusing a bucket of golf balls. And he is, you know, he's hitting some of the longest drives he's ever hit. He's got no control because he's so angry. And R.C. Sproul asked him what it was like to golf with a president and the, this world-renowned evangelist. And, and the guy went just berserk about that preacher shoving his God down my throat, which R.C. couldn't believe because Billy Graham is not that kind of person. He's not a forceful, in-your-face, I'm-going-to-beat-you-over-the-head-with-the-butt kind of person. And when the golf pro finally calmed down, he actually admitted, no, he never said anything. Why would he have reacted that way? Because the way Jesus showed through the life of Billy Graham. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. If the world hates us, it's because they see him in us. If the world doesn't react to us, is there enough Jesus getting through? Now, we're at a disadvantage in the United States. We are at a distinct disadvantage. I've said this before. I'll say it again. People don't like it when I say this because it makes them uncomfortable. The believer who does not face opposition to his or her faith is prone to atrophy in that faith. When you were younger, for most of you, my children excluded because none of them have ever been athletic, but when you were younger, You could probably go for a jog for a quarter mile, maybe a half a mile. And when you got done with that jog, you didn't feel too terrible bad. But if I were to invite everybody in here right now to go out for a quarter mile jog, I would also have to invite AMR to bring a fleet of ambulances because most of us haven't exercised in that way, and those muscles have atrophied to the point where I don't have the lung capacity to go for a quarter-mile job. It's just not there. We were talking last night, I don't have the lung capacity to sing along with the radio in the car anymore. So I started listening to audiobooks. I don't have to sing. The protections we have in this country that guarantee us the freedom to worship or not, as we see fit, protections have caused a lot of atrophy in the church. We don't have to worry about the government coming in and telling us we need to shut you down because your beliefs don't align with the official state church. Like just happened in China. There's a huge crackdown on one of the biggest house churches in China right now. We have a, a, a plentitude. I was, I was picking on Dave this morning when, when we got to Bay Vista before they started practicing. He walks up on the platform and he says, that's where I left my Bible. I said, really, Dave, you left your Bible here at the church? I'm going to tell all your Sunday school class. He's like, okay, I left one of my Bibles. Because Dave's like I am. He's probably got 20 different paper copy Bibles in his house, an entire library on his phone. You can access the internet. In China, where their faith is against the law, 
there are believers who have a portion of a page of a Bible. And that's their access to Scripture. That's it. And you know they can probably recite that portion of a page of Scripture with their eyes closed flawlessly. Most of us can probably say John 3.16. Probably. We've had a lot of atrophy in the church. We don't have to defend our faith from assault by the government. And, now here's, here's one of those things that other preachers don't like when, when preachers like me point this out. We have become so reliant on professional clergy to tell us what Scripture means that we don't even know how to study it anymore. Now, you know, a lot of us, well, that's, that's, that's a Catholic thing. They're not allowed to read their Bibles. Actually, they are allowed to read their Bibles. They're actually encouraged to read their Bibles. But the priesthood will tell them what they're supposed to come up with for a conclusion. And so will a lot of Baptist preachers and Methodist preachers preachers and Anglican preachers. No. We need to know what the Scripture says so that when the assault comes, we can defend it. We can defend our faith. We don't know how to defend our faith. We're literally in a vegetative state when it comes to our faith. Those who live comfortably in their sin nature react negatively to the teaching of Jesus. We can start seeing more and more of that in our culture as we've moved into that post-Christian world that the United States is, but we still have those government protections. We, we, we lose our minds when somebody attacks us, legitimately attacks us because of our faith. I mean, it has to go to Supreme Court cases in order to be defended. Why? Because we don't know how to defend it. Those who live in their sin nature react negatively to the teaching of Jesus because they're opposed to the one who sent him. They're opposed to God the Father. Their natural bent is against him. Have you ever heard somebody tell you that they're not opposed to God? It's just not good enough for them, right? Sinners, especially over here in the West, where we like to think of ourselves as enlightened and smart, we, we're not, we're not anti-God. We're just neutral. You know, scripture tells us there's no such thing as neutral towards God. You're, you're either for God or against God. There is no fence to sit on. You're, you're either for or you're against. Period. If you're not for, you're against. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, if, if I hadn't come, if I hadn't taught, if I hadn't done the things that they saw, then people would have still been able to deceive themselves into thinking they were without sin for their, without guilt for their sin. He actually says they'd be without sin. They wouldn't have been guilty for sin. He's not talking about actual guilt. He's talking about feelings of guilt. Why was that golf pro? So tore up about being in the, the foursome with Billy Graham playing golf. 
Well, because I imagine what was happening was because I played golf. I have played exactly 24 holes of golf, and I know how this goes. All right? The golf pro, probably trying to show off, addresses the ball, lines up for his tee shot, and he swings, and he shanks it. And he probably said some less than savory stuff. And Billy Graham didn't say anything. Now I say this because I remember working at McAllister's that day that somebody asked if I could vacation time over Christmas. It was it was that first year after I'd retired, so they were asking if I were going back to Pennsylvania for Christmas. And I said, no, it's it's kind of hard for a pastor to go on vacation at Christmas time. And front girls looks at this guy in the kitchen and she says, why didn't you tell me he's a pastor? I'm back here cussing all over in front of him. I spent 20 years in the military. I probably said worse than she has. What was it about? It's that idea, that position that makes the sinner uncomfortable, that makes the sinner feel guilty about their If Jesus hadn't come, the world would have been able to deceive themselves into thinking that their good works were good enough and that their bad works weren't that bad. After all, I've never killed anybody. Maybe. Right? They wouldn't know the depth of their guilt. They wouldn't feel guilty because they could lie to themselves. But then Jesus showed up and He raised the standard. He showed what a perfect life looks like. He showed what a sinless life looks like. He showed what God's will looks like. And when a sinner sees that, when the world sees that, they don't like it. They know their guilt. They don't like it. And that dislike comes out towards those who reflect Jesus in their life. If your presence... And, and I, I really want you to understand this because I'm not talking about you being a jerk or me being a jerk because I can be a jerk and make people hate me. I've had lots of students. I've had lots of practice. <laughs> okay? I'm, I'm pretty adept at it. I'm talking about people not liking me because they see Jesus in the way I act. If you're around a bunch of unsaved people and they're not uncomfortable because of Jesus in your life, you may want to consider getting more Jesus in your life. You might want to figure out how to make that, that, that light shine out a little bit more. Because if you look like they do, and you talk like they do, and you act like they do, Jesus says, they're going to love you just like they love themselves. Because you fit in. This is why... The previous passage was so important. This is why Jesus said, love one another. That's how people are going to know that you're my disciples. Because the one thing that the world cannot do is to love someone that sacrificially. That is the mark of a changed life. That is what's going to show people that we belong to Jesus. These things I command you, so you will love one 
another. Why are the themes in the order that they are? Hope, peace, joy, love. Hope's internal. Peace is internal. Joy starts to leak out. But love should be that shows Jesus to the world. 